Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Striding, the director of La Trobe Asia. In today's podcast, we will be talking about the broad strategic trends and security challenges affecting the Asian region now and into the future, and how events and dynamics in other regions may have ripple effects in Asia. I am really pleased to welcome two distinguished guests on the podcast today. Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan is the Head of Research for the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre and an international security researcher with a focus on polar strategy, Russian politics and maritime security. Also joining us is Professor Peter Dean, the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Studies Centre, an expert in Australian foreign and defence policy, the US alliance and the US's role in the Indo-Pacific. Now before we begin, Liz, you have to tell us something. So for the purposes of the podcast, these are all my personal views and not the views of the Department of Defence or the Royal Australian Navy. Any disclaimers from you, Pete? Yeah, my views are all my own and uh, anyone can feel free to use them because they're probably, well, they're only my views. <laughs> they certainly don't represent the views of anyone other than me. Okay. Well, hopefully that's good enough for your listeners. Now that we have those disclaimers out of the way, we can get right into it. Pete, I'm going to start with you and the Indo-Pacific concept. So in strategic circles in particular, this regional construct seems to have replaced Asia or Asia-Pacific. Who or what is included in this regional construct of the Indo-Pacific and where has it come from? Well, that's a great question, Beck, and thanks for having me. I think it depends on where you're sitting or where you're standing and who you are. So certainly it's been a concept that's been around particularly in different parts and themes and ideas for quite a while, but it became really prominent around about 2012, 2013. One of the key drivers of this was, of course, the Australian 2013 Defence White Paper, where that construct was used. That was put in place by the then Gillard government and Stephen Smith, who was the Minister of Defence at the time. Now, interestingly enough, we have to point out geography matters a lot here. So Stephen Smith is a Western Australian. He was then followed up as Defence Minister by David Johnson, another Western Australian on the other side of politics. And of course, the Indo-Pacific concept has a bipartisan view on Australian politics. So it flowed through into the 2016 Defence White Paper, the 2017 DFAT Foreign Affairs White Paper, Julie Bishop, Foreign Minister, Western Australian as well flowed through that concept and has been really entrenched in Australian strategic lexicon since that period back in 2012-2013. And there's been some big advocates for it. People like Rory Medcalf, for instance, has been a really big proponent of this. And particularly a lot of scholars who look and study the Indian Ocean, who are interested in India in particular, and sort of want a broader spectrum of our region that includes India in, which India is part of South Asia, but it's not conceptually or strategically often seen as, as that is the case. And then if you also look around the region, Shinzo Abe, when he was Prime Minister of Japan, had an Indo-Pacific concept. The Americans have talked about, uh, along with Japan, this concept and idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. We now even see ASEAN starting to use the term, different countries throughout the region starting to embrace it. And certainly Europe talking about having an Indo-Pacific strategy. NATO and EU talking about this, the French, the British, the Germans all talking about this. So it's a contested term. As we know, Asia-Pacific 
was a contested term, which was around for a long time too. I noticed some of your <laughs> colleagues uh, here at Latrobe, people who have big question marks over the Indo-Pacific concept <laughs> versus Asia. So it is a contested term, but I think it's deeply now entrenched in at least the formal Australian, Japanese, American, and other major power player views of the region. And I think that's why it's particularly important. And you have to say, it probably has a little bit to do with a country starting with C and ending with A that's not Canada or Cambodia. <laughs> or Cuba. <laughs> or Colombia. <laughs> I'll just jump in on that as well. Two points I think are worth highlighting. The first is the Indo-Pacific is broadly a political construct with geographical boundaries. It's a maritime-centric space, Mm -hmm. which I think is super important, you know, drawing in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, something that the previous, I guess, political iteration of regional order in the Asia-Pacific didn't necessarily do, left out much of the Indian Ocean, which was uh, problematic. And second, the Indo-Pacific construct, I think, is such a great opportunity for Australia as an anchor point to the region to really drive the future of the region. But the point is, we've really got to get in the driver's seat. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned that there is a bit of scepticism still. I mean, I will put my own hand up to being sceptical about some of the political motivations for the Indo-Pacific and what's driving that concept. But it is really, I think, uh, an important point to make that this is a maritime conception, whereas Asia-Pacific was more of an economic. So this is really about how to think about strategy and how to think about the emerging security challenges of the region. So that's really my next question. Pete, if you had to choose three of the most pressing security challenges facing the Indo-Pacific over the next five to 10 years, what are they and why? And Liz, I'm going to ask you the same question. Well, Beck, can I say China for $100, please? <laughs> uh, maybe China, China, <laughs> China. This is jeopardy. Um, no, so look, I, I think a bit more serious. China is a concern. The trajectory that it's taken under Xi Jinping, the way it's bending or attempting to meld and in some parts break the the rules-based international order that states like Australia and other liberal democracies have come to know and love since the end of the Second World War is a real, you know, disconcerting change in the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape. It's built off the back of the rising Chinese power and economic weight and might and and their different views. And of course, China has become a lot more authoritarian. We now don't even have a system in China of how to change the leader since Xi Jinping has become leader for life. And we've seen some, you know, very disconcerting events happening in Hong Kong and Xinjiang province as well. So China is a big factor. But I think the other thing we have to put right up there as well as the other C, which is climate change. You know, we're seeing the the effects of climate change. Only recently we've had 40 degree temperatures in London. Mm. You know, we've had floods and bushfires in Australia. What's been really positive to see with the new Australian government, they've been able to go into regions like the South Pacific. They list... Number one on their issues of concern is climate change. And we've been able to talk about that in a realistic and meaningful way and talk about that with our partners in the South Pacific, which is critically important. So climate change is really, really big as well as um, China. But I think also more broadly, I would also say, you know, you talk about the COVID pandemic and other things, but I would say more about economic security. Mm -hmm. I'm really concerned about the ongoing impact of 
COVID on our economy, on the changes that we're seeing in the economy. A lot of countries are are starting to face rising inflation, debt issues, changes in the sort of economic structures of those countries. And we know economics is just key to people's prosperity, to their livelihood, key to both domestic and international security. And we sit on the precipice, I suppose, in many ways of some really serious economic ramifications in a large number of countries. The potential outflows of that could be really problematic. And of course, the war in the Ukraine means we're having to look at economics differently and climate change differently as energy security is becoming a real key thing in different ways and being seen more strategically. I'd sort of put up climate change, economic security in China as probably the three big things that are going to impact the region in the next five to 10 years. And of course, the economic picture has ramifications for military spending as well in dealing with some of those more conventional security challenges. But Liz, your top three pressing security challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, so top three beyond China, China, China. First of all, I think let's look ashore for starters, would be kind of the failure for Australia to really harness a strategic culture around our position in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, there's a concept of we're an island nation, but yet we're not a maritime nation. I think we really need to Mm. make that shift. And it's something the late dearly missed Brendan Sargent really pushed, this idea of needing a strategic imagination as a priority. The second challenge for me in the Indo-Pacific is this proliferation of every activity being labelled grey zone. And I think any action that's beneath the threshold of overt conflict, you know, pushing into war, seems to attract the label grey zone activity. But is this not a failure of peacetime strategy for us to figure out our responses to a range of actions that are occurring in that space? The third challenge I see in the Indo-Pacific is the kind of overburdening of our logistic chains. And I think, again, we're seeing the ramifications of not putting energy into protecting our sea lines of communication in terms of what's happening in Europe. But we've got a really congested space in the Indo-Pacific, particularly in Australia's north, obviously, and a capability gap has absolutely emerged. We don't have our you know national flagged fleet. And what we're seeing is pressures on daily needs of all Australians, goods, services in the country. You know, personal example of this is I'm really struggling to get kids Panadol at the Mm. moment. You know, we're limited to one Mm. bottle if you can find it. So with over 90% of our medicines coming out of China, you know, that's a logistical chain I think we really need to be focusing on. Mm. I'm glad I asked that question to the both of you because we've got Pete talking about threats and Liz talking more about response to threats. And they're all wrapped up in that idea of, of what a security challenge is. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of multiple ways of thinking about that. But Liz, I'll stick with you for the moment. I mean, you're an East Europe specialist, uh, particularly uh, around Russia. Dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> what does Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine mean for Asia, particularly thinking about there's this comparison that's often made with Taiwan. I mean, is that a fair comparison or are there key differences that mean that that might be a bit oversimplified? Yeah, really good question. For a lay person to kind of be watching what's going on in Eastern Europe at the moment and thinking, how does that affect where I am in the Indo-Pacific or Asia, arguably? Absolutely, Taiwan is the point of contention that sticks out. You know, and then we have these narratives of what is China learning? Mm. from the Western response, from Europeans' resolve to Russian activity uh, in Ukraine. 
I think they're valid points and it's a valid concern. I don't want to be the person that says Taiwan's safe on a podcast and, you know, <laughs> called out by Twitter armies in five years' time for being wrong. <laughs> but I think just on a broader perspective, we're seeing the limitations, at least, of the current international order in terms of the international norms and laws that make up broadly defined the order that we've got. Yes, we've seen unprecedented European resolve. And it is absolutely something that I think that, you know, the Kremlin was not expecting. We can hear arguments of it being an intelligence failure, but I do think it was as simple as there was an expectation that the cracks in the EU, the cracks in the European community were so deep that this would be the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? That hasn't occurred. Speaking about the time for this conflict, I do think it will drag on potentially for many years to come, keeping in mind it really did kick off in 2014, you know, not this year. Mm. So it's been part of life for many people on either sides of the conflict. So it's been normalised to a point as well. So coming back to Indo-Pacific, there's that kind of contest and the reshaping of international law and norms on one part. The second part is the response. So as a Western Anglo state, Australia... It has us, I guess, considering, well, who would come to our aid Mm. if we faced a similar threat? So we've seen more investment in alliances. We've seen the prioritisation of things like AUKUS, you know, for future planning to make sure that we are not, God willing, ever faced with those kind of pressing threats. So it's interesting, Liz, you mentioned that the role of norms and rules in establishing international order, sovereignty is a constitutive rule. Absolutely. Like breaking that's pretty serious. And this rules-based order narrative has emerged as part of a broader Indo-Pacific strategic narrative. And Pete, the US Indo-Pacific strategy, Biden administration released this document earlier this year, but there seems to be a suggestion from some quarters that the US focus on the Indo-Pacific is actually competing with its focus and strategic interest in what's going on in Europe or the Atlantic theatre, especially because of Ukraine. I think there's a really important question here about the size of the US's (laughs) attention span, particularly (laughs) when it's dealing with its own domestic political issues, and especially because because its economic plan in the Indo-Pacific seems pretty thin. So should the region be concerned about the US's commitment? Yes. <laughs> Look, I, I think nothing focuses the mind like when you have a threat like what's happening in the Ukraine happening on your doorstep. Of course, the here and now, the immediate security conflicts and concerns, and particularly something as egregious as what we're seeing in Ukraine. I mean, this is the largest land war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Hundreds of people are losing their life every day. And as Liz said, it looks like it's going to drag on. Now, Mm. European resolve has been great, but that European resolve is fundamentally backed up by US power. And if you simply look at the amount of aid and military supplies and stuff going into Ukraine, it's overwhelmingly coming from the United States Mm. of America. And we have seen different versions of that resolve in different European states. You know, there's often been questions about how committed Germany has been in terms of some of the ways it's approached this conflict, although I'm not a European specialist in expertise. On the US side, look, 
the Biden administration, you know, appointing Kurt Campbell as the sort of Indo-Pacific czar or head mm-hmm. was very positive. Having a strategy come out, being more deeply engaged in the region, refocusing back on alliances in a way that the Trump administration didn't do. And, and having a presence and turning up has been really important. Being able to address issues like climate change, which appeals to the broader part of the Indo-Pacific, including the South Pacific and other states, not just it being about China, but about it being about the broad economic and broader security elements of the region has been really positive from the United States of America in that regards. You know, they're talking about the hard power reposturing has been important. I think AUKUS is actually important more broadly in this, even if it was badly announced and badly sold within the region. And I think the region's starting to come to terms with what it really kind of means, which I think is important, even though there's not a lot of information out Mm. there from the Australian government or other governments in relation to that. But more broadly, there's been this ongoing question now for decades, right? It goes throughout US strategic history. The US is a global power and it's got NATO there, which is pressing. Every time the US tries to pivot and refocus or to rebalance and refocus or whatever, it seems that something in the Middle East or in Mm. Europe happens that sort of holds onto its attention. So it's difficult for the US to restructure and rebalance. It's difficult for any major power to do this. So there should be some underlying concern, as you said, The US domestic political issues we can't look away from at the moment. We've got everything from what seems to be through the investigations on the January 6th issue that the Trump administration seemed to want to overturn democracy in the United States Mm. of America. There's a lot distracting the US at home. The big missing piece of US strategy in the Indo-Pacific is that economic piece. So Donald Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership on sort of day one. You know, we had this bizarre sense that Hillary Clinton, who was one of the architects of that, ran for president, actually opposing the thing that she'd helped put together. (laughs) And that was because of US domestic politics. And Biden faces not just challenges on the right on free trade, but on the left Mm. as much as he does on the right. So it's really difficult for them to get some traction in that regards. Now, overlaying that is, of course, the deep commitment of the US alliance system in the region. The fact that what we're seeing now is a much more integrated, it's not so much of a hubs and spokes system anymore as it is some type of patchwork quilt or spider web or something, a network, a network model. But also that networked model is being reflective of the fact that Americans have brought in integrated deterrence. It's an omission by the United States that they can't do conventional deterrence against China on their own in the region. Mm. It's an omission by the United States. They don't have hegemony in the region anymore. Mm. Mm. So what they're going to have to do is do what alliances do best. When you strip all the stuff that we talk about about alliances away, what do they do at the end? They aggregate power and they're about military power. So that's what they're attempting to do. And to, to get a better balancing coalition to ensure that we have a balance of power in the region, which is what you know the US are really after now, they have to do more with their allies. They have to empower their allies more. And ultimately, that's what AUKUS is about. It's about giving us technology to make us to be a more stronger, more capable alliance partner to do more ourselves, but also contribute more back into that aggregation of power and that balance of power in the region. I was just about to say that's part of the role and function of AUKUS is fitting yep. into that integrated deterrence Terrence. picture. It- Pete's on to something, shockingly. It's apples and oranges when it comes to what the US needs to be doing or thinks it needs to be doing in Europe and then what it needs to be doing in the Indo-Pacific, right? So just a broader argument here is around the sheer heavy lifting that the US is going to have to do if it wants mm-hmm. to play ball in our region. Mm-hmm. I understand that we can use all sorts of labels, Indo-Pacific pivot, make it sexy, but... 
in practice, it's going to be really hard. Just look to the ways in which ASEAN states voted in the UN over Russian activity in Ukraine. You know, in Europe, it's quite easy for your enemies and your allies to be isolated and acknowledged, right? We know who's on our team there. But here in our own region, there's very little I think we do agree on beyond primacy of sovereignty, principles of non-interference, but this non-alignment matter stemming from the role of India Mm. in the Indo-Pacific, I think something that we do need to get a grasp of. So yeah, the US has plenty it needs to be doing in the region. I think we all agree on that. I just don't think it's something that can be done quickly. It Mm. needs to scale. And I don't know if focusing on European security matters at the moment is a wise thing for the White House. Well, I think one of the things I'll add there is the threat from Russia is real, right? They're fighting a a conventional war in the Ukraine and they're one of the largest nuclear powers in the world. But the Russian GDP is smaller than Australia's now. Mm. I mean, they're economically not doing very well. And over the longer term, they're not going to pose the same type of challenge that China has been and is doing to the United States and other states in the region. You know, when you step back and look at it objectively across the globe, there is far more economic interest for the United States in the Indo-Pacific. There's far greater opportunities as there is challenges for the United States and other states in the region. This is why strategy is so hard, right? It seems so obvious on one level that China is a much bigger concern if it continues on this illiberal path that it's been on and continues to do some of the things that disconcern the United States, Australia and other states. Russia's doing the same thing, but Russia doesn't have the same level of economic capacity, the same population size to be as big a threat. But it is the here and now, and it's a nuclear power, Mm. and it's causing particular issues in the makeup of the European order. And of course, one of the differences we're seeing here is that China realistically still is a regional power. It can focus all its power and energy, its economic might, particularly its hard power military might, on the East and South China Seas in its immediate region, where the United States still Mm. remains a global power and a relatively declining global power. It's only going to get harder for the United States economically, militarily and other stuff. That's about making choices and they're going to have the, to make some hard choices. I think choices. in the short term, we can absolutely see here and now the erosion of the rules-based order occurring in Europe. So that's the primary response mechanism for the White House. But in terms of the sheer scale and irreversible impact that China's rise will have on said rules-based order, yep. there needs to be some action. Funnily enough, we're in fierce agreement. Liz and I never normally do that. (laughs) Am I the one that's going to have to disagree and talk about how the rules-based order is only, you know, a a narrative designed to reinforce Western hegemony? Uh, It is, But of course it is, is. yeah. We're all in agreement still. And look, it's, it's, it's the best we've got, but also we've done wonderfully well out of it. As a middle power Western liberal democratic state who is into open and free trade and all that type of stuff, the rules-based international order where our major power ally has had the unipolar moment or was the dominant maritime power, particularly in the Asia or the Indo-Pacific, it's been wonderful for us. Now, that order is gone, but what we need to try and save from it is the best we can, which is more of a recognition of the multipolarity of the region, but hopefully that we can get a balance of power. That is a Kremlin talking point. Yeah. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks for that, Liz. I was hoping to be on the list that the Kremlin came out with. Somehow I missed out Maybe you're on, on the list. band list. Please put me on the list next time around. We have to face it. I mean, when you're looking about strategy stuff, we're looking at through what's in our interests, right? What's in our strategic interests. What's also in the interest, what we think is for the best way for the region to operate. And I would say overwhelmingly, the majority of states in the region would much prefer the concept of a free and open Indo-Pacific than a hierarchical order under Chinese dominance and hegemony. Pete's got it in one. But also, I think we need to have a discussion, a serious policy discussion about what it is going to cost us as Australia. Yeah, so it's quite easy to sort of talk about um, what the order gives like us, based order. But what yeah. is Australia prepared to do to defend that exactly. order is the crucial That's question. Yep. But I also wanted to make the point that, and I know I was the one who did this, and in an earlier question about Indo-Pacific versus the European Atlantic theatre. But Russia, talking about being stretched, going back to your point, Pete, about where China can focus its strategic attentions. The US, as a global power, has sort of had that view that its interests canvass the globe. But Russia's interesting because it's also an Indo-Pacific player and we don't talk about that very much. Are you about to give me a Russia moment? Yeah, go on. Have your Russia moment. Back into Soviet era, right? Soviet Navy throughout the Indian Ocean was a common feature. And if we go even further back, you know, late 1800s, there was fears in Australia. I think it was 1893. I want to go with that date. Yeah, let's go with that date, that the Russians were going to invade Australia. More to the kind of African side of the Indian Ocean, Russia's footprint is immense. Madagascar is an interesting melting point for Russian naval interests. That also goes to how broadly you define the Indo-Pacific, right? So Mm -hmm. if you look at the Australian 2020 Defence Strategic Update, it it kind of narrows down that strategic element of the Indo-Pacific for us. You know, it talks about maritime Southeast Asia. It talks about the South Pacific and the parts of the Indian Ocean that go up towards India and then skirt around up to the Middle East. It doesn't necessarily go over to the western side of the Indo-Pacific. And then... And that can be reconceived by different governments or different politicians. You know, Richard Miles, when he was opposition spokesman for defence, spoke at a conference in Western Australia where he talked about Africa and the importance of that as a part of the Indo-Pacific concept. He was speaking a little bit more about it in terms of economic terms and maritime security terms. But the question is, how far is that breach? Now, as more of a strategic studies defence scholar person, I I worry about when you talk about the Indo-Pacific and the very broadest reaches, right? Ambitions are limitless and resources are finite. Absolutely. Um, And hard power resources, defence resources are particularly finite. And throughout Australian strategic history, you will find where we tend to focus our concentration on is the South Pacific and maritime Southeast Asia. And that really hasn't changed all the way up to the 2020 DSU. That's really what that focus is. You know, I was only giving a talk yesterday at the Menzies Institute about the way we conceived the region in the 1950s and the early mm-hmm. 1960s, and it was very focused on Southeast Asia. I don't think that will realistically change. And we've seen in the recent election and in recent times how much more we've been drawn back to the South Pacific, for instance, as a really key area for Australia. So while we can talk about the Indo-Pacific in very broad times at terms, particularly diplomatically or trade-wise... And I will add here that one of the problems with the Indo-Pacific, it doesn't have that trade network system the same way that, say, the Asia-Pacific community did, like APEC and, and other areas. 
you really got to look at it when you start to talk in hard military terms. There's, there's much more limitations in how you can conceive your geography. There's also there's a number of historical points, I'm just remembering more, of the Russian maritime threat, right, for Australia. So throughout the Cold War, every challenge that Canberra imagined and put to paper, arguably as well, in strategic concepts, was the idea of potential Soviet submarines basing in Antarctica. Mm. Right, within striking distance. So can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, another point that I'd make is that Australia has really increased its relationship with Japan and Japan has contested territorial Mm, claims with Russia. So there's an interesting sort of dynamic going on there. But going back to the Southern Ocean... This is if we're part... talking about the Indo-Pacific, then surely we're not talking about the Southern Ocean. This that is an arc of indifference. A beef <laughs> with arc both of indifference, I like <laughs> about the Southern Ocean. I mean, it's a sort of neglected flank in a maritime sense, but also in a territorial sense because Australia has that 42% claim over yeah, the yeah. Um, ice mass that is Antarctica. It's our bag, our Antarctic bag. But it's an interesting concept, right? our claims in Antarctica, because not even our allies, the US primarily, recognise that claim. To a number of states, China included, they are largely imaginary lines on the continent and they're crafting policy based on that point, which is a problem for Australia because if you think of a 42% claim, if Antarctica holds 70% roughly of the world's fresh water, Australia's claiming almost 30%. Huge right? Thinking Mm. of our population. But there's a capability problem. It's a chicken and egg thing. I don't know whether we deal with our strategy and our indifference to our entire southern flank, or do we start building our capability to operate in that region? More broadly, I think the point Liz is talking about here or referring to, which is what we also discussed earlier, which is how much is Australia willing to spend to protect that border or to protect our interests and stuff? And in defence, Capability terms, we've had you know discussion about 2% of GDP, although don't get me too started on why assessing defence spending by a percentage of GDP is a good idea. works wonderfully mm. well when you go into recession and you keep up the level of defence spending because it just keeps getting bigger as the economy shrinks. But we're facing real significant challenges. The question that's been put is, is 2% enough? But the real question is, is what level of military capability do we need to do all the things that the Australian government wants to set as strategic objectives and what interests that we have. How much of an interest is the Southern Ocean to us? How much of an interest is that particular part of the world to us? And then how is that reflected in the types of capabilities we have to ensure that sovereignty or to protect those areas? And having one icebreaker, you would have to say, is probably mm. not good enough if you're just deciding that your interests are that particular high. This is a Joe Biden moment. Show us your budget and I'll yeah. tell you what you value. And that is an important point that we can have a long laundry list of capabilities, but ultimately governments have to make decisions about what they're not prioritising in other areas, education, welfare. But Pete, just last question, because I know that you're paying a lot of attention to this uh, new government in Australia. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, Foreign Minister Penny Wong, Defence Minister Richard Miles have been out and about in the region. So what can we expect from them? 
It's been an, an amazing few months, hasn't it? I was completely blown away about how much prominence foreign affairs and defence got during the election campaign. That's, you know, election campaigns in Australia are overwhelmingly fought over <laughs> for domestic political it's good issues. good for the nerds. Yeah, and the Solomon Islands issue came to the fore during the election campaign. So we had a, about a week or so there of the election campaign that was very focused on those issues. And then, of course, the new Prime Minister was sworn in with a couple of other high-level cabinet minister, so he could go off to the quad meeting with Penny Wong. Mm. As Dan Flinton from the Lowy Institute pointed out, that it took six months before John Howard as prime minister went overseas. It even took Kevin Rudd, Kevin 747. It took him three weeks before he went off jet-setting overseas. And of course, basically on day one, Anthony Albanese three left hours. the country. Yeah, three <laughs> hours in. And I think that's reflective of a couple of things, how important the changing international landscape in our region is both to us internationally, but also to our domestic political affairs, our economic affairs, this integration of these things. But I think the government's done particularly well. The issue that the last government had, I think, was Scott Morrison. He was playing international politics the way he played Australian domestic politics, which was the way he played New South Wales Liberal Party politics, which was crash or crash Mm -hmm. through. You know, when you have the president of France openly calling you a liar, almost the whole country would hold its breath every time he went overseas to see what was going to happen next. And it was almost like everyone had a sigh of relief mm. when Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese went overseas. And of course, Penny's been on a whirlwind tour. You know, she's made a very strong impression being able to speak to local communities in their own language, being able to present, as she said, the new, the broader face of Australia, including from her heritage and her background into Australia. And Anthony Albanese has, you know, been to NATO, been to the Quad, been to Indonesia, been now to the Pacific Islands Forum. So almost been a little bit of a calming effect. But when you really drill down to it, has policy changed very much? The image of Australia, the way they're doing business on foreign and defence policy has changed. The refocus on multilateralism, the refocus on building trust with international partners, the close relationship Albanese's already had with Jacinda Ardern and, and New Zealand, where that was very fractured with Scott Morrison. But China's the interesting question here. Getting on, much better at least in the diplomat that we're talking to mm. each other. Fantastic. But with a very clear message that Australia's policy has not changed. Mm. We're still in that zone of the government getting comfortable and settling in. They've committed to more money towards DFAT, more money towards aid programs, particularly in the South Pacific. And for Richard Miles, he's reiterated, he's been to Washington, you know, he's been to Shangri-La, he's met with his Chinese counterpart, he's met with his American and other interlocutors, which has been really great, put down some markers, but he's yet to have to make real big decisions other than the command of the Australian Defence Force and the command arrangements. He's sitting on the precipice of a force posture review and force structure questions on the precipice of decisions around submarines. And of course, we're in dire economic times. Again, how much will the government be able to hold its budgetary priorities when it needs to start doing budget repair on following through on Penny Wong's desire and commitment to rebuild our diplomatic capacity and do more in aid. And of course, the cost of things in Richard Miles' portfolio is never going to go down. No. How much can they hold the line on the AUKUS commitments, the nuclear submarines? But there's also many, many other pressing issues that he will face. Decisions about armoured vehicles, about strike capabilities, about new platforms for Navy and Air Force as well. So it's a big agenda. They've started off, I think, very, very well, but it is a bit of the honeymoon period. But on the front foot in a very positive way, um, rebuilding the relationship with France has been incredibly important, given it's an Indo-Pacific power. 
but there's some big crunch moments to come for the government in the next sort of six months. I think it's important, and I'll turn to you, Liz, for your final thoughts on that. But I think it's important for Australia that we now have a foreign minister who has clout in the government. That's something that is quite different from the previous government. But Liz, what are your yeah, final thoughts? Yeah, if we thoughts? just you know, bring it back home for a moment, I really do hope we have a strategic reawakening and our maritime identity is something that becomes the centre of that. Opportunities are beginning at the end of our shoreline. You know, they don't end. Sure, a number of threats do originate there, but so do national opportunities. And I just hope whether it's a force posture review, a new defence white paper, you know, at the heart of either of those strategic planning documents is this argument that the maritime space is where we will be asserting Australian power protecting Australian prosperity well into the future. Thank you so much, Liz, and thank you, Pete, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Beck Strading, and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading, and thanks for listening.